0: Welcome back to Clinicians Brief the Podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Watson, and I'm here today with Dr. Andrew Bugby. Dr. Bugby is an associate clinical professor of internal medicine at the University of Georgia, and he's agreed to sit down with us today and walk us through a case of immune mediated thrombocytopenia in a dog. So in today's episode, we're going to review the main features of ITP, as well as discuss some medications that you should be reaching for, or in some medications that you should avoid, or at least use cautiously in these really critical patients. Today's conversation was inspired by Dr. Bugby's case-based pharmacology quiz that's titled Immune-Mediated Thrombocytopenia in a Dog, and you at home can find it on our website at www.cliniciansbrief.com. Hi, Dr. Bugby, How are you doing today?
1: Great, happy to be here.
0: Good, good. We're excited to talk about ITP with you. Um, But before we get started, would you take a minute and just tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Definitely. Uh, I'm originally from Dallas, Texas, and uh, did my undergrad and vet school training at Texas A&M University, and then came over to the University of Georgia for a rotating internship and internal medicine residency. And then I was on faculty at Purdue uh, for a period of time and then came back to the University of Georgia in 2014. And I've been here ever since.
0: That's wonderful. My first boss went to Texas A&M, so. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about ITP. Uh, We know that immune-mediated thrombocytopenia can be primary or secondary to other conditions. Which is more common?
1: Uh, I would say probably... um, primary is going to end up being most common and and whether that's a factor of us just not finding the underlying cause or not, I think is hard to to kind of tell for sure. But uh, for the majority of cases that have been reported or that we see clinically, uh, most of the time we don't find an underlying uh, reason for the ITP. And so that usually has why uh, a lot of the studies have primary cases being more common than secondary cases.
0: When we are lucky enough to find an underlying cause, what are some of those triggers for ITP?
1: Yeah, I think some of the things we always get worried about are, you know, depending on the age of the animal, sometimes neoplastic uh, diseases can be associated with stimulating uh, paraneoplastic um, ITP. Probably the big one in in veterinary medicine is going to be infectious diseases. And so things like uh, Ehrlichia or Rocky Mountain spotted fever, Babesia, Babesia. uh, Anaplasma um, can also be at play with those guys. And then sometimes, occasionally, we'll run into... Um, systemic inflammatory diseases like SLE, or um, we've had a couple of animals come through Georgia recently that um, had endocarditis or uh, discospondylitis that had manifested hmm. uh, secondary ITP as a result of that. Um, and then there's also a couple of um, drug associations that you know can be associated um, with it as well So, obviously things like chemotherapeutic agents. Um, but things like, uh, antibiotics like TMS, um, so the sulfonamide drug class or cephalosporins have also been associated with it. So, you know, I really, you know, whenever I'm talking to, to clients about ITP cases, you know, I kind of let them know that, you know, anything that stimulates the immune system has the, the risk of causing an aberrant immune response. And so it could be anything from, you know, a, a known, uh, drug that was given to bee sting that happened in the backyard that, you know, they didn't know about. So I think that's kind of what makes it hard to pin down the secondary cause sometimes. But um, I think being aware of of what secondary causes are are important just because it dictates some of the diagnostic testing that goes into evaluating your ITP patients to make sure that you're treating them appropriately and, and not predisposing to either prolonged disease courses or poorer outcomes.
0: Sure. The, um, This particular case, as I said in the intro, uh, you know, was centered around a a German Shepherd, and there was some history for the case. The dog was up to date on vaccines, and the last vaccinations had been six months prior. Um, So, is there a current understanding of vaccination as a potential trigger for immune-mediated thrombocytopenia?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's always one of those things that comes up just because you know vaccination is such an important um, component of. of preventative care and veterinary medicine. And, um, you know, a lot of our patients are getting vaccinated, you know, regularly. And so invariably, some of those animals are going to develop autoimmune diseases. And um, one group kind of out of Purdue looked at kind of trying to have a temporal association between the development of ITP specifically and vaccination, and they didn't find a clear link between the two. I think for most people, um, you know, if you've been vaccinated within two weeks, um, that potentially we could say that there may have been an association kind of with the immune stimulation from the vaccination that could have predisposed to the autoimmune reaction. It's For me, personally, it's a little bit harder to, to say that if it's been over two weeks since the vaccination, that it has any role um, kind of in the, the development of the autoimmune disease. But I think that um, nothing kind of definitive has been kind of shown to, to be a a link between the two conditions and not just ITP, but I think with any of the other autoimmune diseases as well.
0: One of the things that I struggle with um, in general practice is whether or not to vaccinate these patients again. So is there any mm-hmm. consensus on if these patients are recovered um, and off medicine, you know, off medications, is it okay to vaccinate them in the future?
1: Yeah, I think consensus may be a little bit strong. because you know, I think without knowing the link between vaccination and the stimulation of the disease process, it's hard to then kind of make broad sweeping recommendations for vaccination. I think kind of anecdotally, I feel like most of my colleagues are hesitant about vaccinating any autoimmune patient kind of after they've been controlled for their disease process. I think, you know, one thing we have to be really careful about in veterinary medicine is that obviously, you know, most states and counties are going to have very strict rabies vaccination laws, and that's not something that you can Um, bypass, you know, even with a a letter from a vet stating the animal has uh, autoimmune disease. And so um, typically, you know, what I talk to owners about is is minimally vaccinating the animals, you know, because a lot of these animals are going to be middle-aged older and have potentially been vaccinated well, you know, most of their life. And so, um, you know, this would be a situation where is it safer for, you know, some of the less common diseases like distemper to do tighter monitoring in them as opposed to routine vaccination. Um, But I think for vets in particular, we still need to be recommending whatever your uh, local regulations are for rabies vaccinations and making sure that that um, is very clear just because um, that can turn into a a legal issue if you've recommended not giving a a rabies vaccination to the patients. Um, And some of it's just tailoring the recommendations to your particular patients. Like I had a um, ITP patient who's traveled regularly with their owner to Mexico and, and she knew that there was an endemic area that they were visiting that distemper was a big issue. And so the risk of infection kind of outweighed the risk of the mm-hmm. vaccination in that dog. And so we decided to, to vaccinate him. So I think, you know, probably figuring out what works for an individual patient and, and kind of what's going to be safe for them in the long run, and then kind of a careful monitoring you know, following rabies or any other vaccinations that you do. If you are vaccinating them, I do think it may be a good idea to kind of separate out um, vaccines and kind of give them, you know, as a tapered course over time, as opposed to kind of doing a lot of vaccinations all at once that could overstimulate the immune system again. Um, so, yeah, so I think that I, I minimally vaccinate and kind of just do what's needed, but um, still recommend rabies at least every three years.
0: Sure. That's some good insight, especially me- especially about maybe spacing the vaccines out a little bit. Um, I know personally I've diagnosed thrombocytopenia in a patient that was completely asymptomatic. I can remember a little chihuahua that came in for a dental cleaning and we, you know, drew for pre-anesthetic labs and um Surprise. couldn't yeah, <laughs> gushing from you know from the jugular uh venipuncture site, which was scary. Mm-hmm. Um Usually, though, there, you know, luckily are at least some signs of hemorrhage, you know, that you're suspecting, you know, oftentimes ecchymosis or melana, as there were in this case. So how low do platelets need to be before spontaneous hemorrhage, you know, starts to occur?
1: Yeah, I mean, if most people are going to say kind of around that 30,000 to 40,000 range, I think um, you know, is, is probably what is most universally agreed upon as kind of the spontaneous bleeding risk. Um, you know, I think occasionally you'll get some of these odd cases that come in that are, you know, 50, 60,000 platelet count but still have active bleeding. And in those situations we tend to think that there may be something else going on, either they have some platelet dysfunction or endothelial dysfunction that may be contributing to kind of why they're bleeding at a little bit higher of a um, platelet count. But I think for the most part, if they're um, kind of above 40,000, the risk of spontaneous hemorrhage is a little bit less in that patient population than kind of getting into the 30 to 40,000 or less range. Mm-hmm. For most cases of ITP, you know, a lot of these primary cases end up being really low, like less than 10,000. And so that's why the, the, bleeding that we see is is a big concern for them. Mm
0: -hmm. And so besides the GI tract and the skin, where are some other places that, you know, bleeding occurs and can lead to these really, you know, critical presentations like you mentioned?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, really, you know, platelets are important for kind of hemostasis at mucosal surfaces. And so really kind of any mucosal surface um, has the risk of um, going into spontaneous bleeding. Um, one of which is, you know, why we see that at the gut, because it's kind of a really big mucosal surface that um, the body has. And so I think other areas where you can sometimes see bleeding would be things like epistaxis. So they might, you know, present with nosebleeds. Oftentimes it's going to be bilateral, could be unilateral if they've, you know, hit their head on something and kind of had a traumatic episode that stimulated the epistaxis. I think some of the unfortunate Areas where sometimes we note, notice bleeding happening happen is um, in the lungs, um, which is obviously not a great thing for the patient, um, as well as in some of the central nervous tissues. And so they can get mm-hmm. uh, hemorrhagic strokes um, in their brain, and they can also bleed into their spinal cord, which may, may cause some peripheral neurologic signs as well. So um, so I think for the most part, I think skin and GI are, are relatively common, but um, yeah, bleeding from any mucosal surfaces... Uh, possible, I think unlike, you know, some of the coagulopathies associated with clotting factors, those are more cavitary bleeds. And so we don't tend to see things like uh, free blood in the abdomen or the chest with ITP. Usually it's going to be restricted to the mucosal bleeding for the most part.
0: When we're looking at diagnostics, um, you know, in addition to the low platelets, are there other clues that we can get from a CBC? I know lots of times when I have immune-mediated hemolytic anemia, I'll see like a high white blood cell count, you know, um, along with that. Um, Do we see that with ITP as well? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So, you know, uh, just like, you know, you mentioned with IMHA that you know the immune system's kind of ramped up, and so it is very mm-hmm. common to um, see a, a leukocytosis, and you may even pick up on a, a left shift to that being an active uh, process, and some toxic chains potentially. Um, and then a lot of the patients, um, especially if they have evidence of petechiation or ecchymosis or melana, um, can also have a anemia associated with that. And a lot of times, since it's a a loss, then the, the anemia tends to be regenerative, assuming there's been enough time, you know, since the, the blood loss occurred in the evaluation to kind of allow that regenerative response. But um, I think anemia and, and kind of leukocytosis are very common in, in this disease process. Like you said, sometimes though, you know, like the, the animal that walked in that looked asymptomatic, you know, they may not be as on fire as, you know, some of these animals that present emergently. And so, you know, the, the magnitude, you know, may be lower in some of the minimally impacted or subclinical um, patients that are maybe early on in the disease course or not have as severe of an inflammatory response.
0: And you had kind of touched on this a little bit, but I was wondering about the degree of thrombocytopenia and if that helps us differentiate between primary and secondary. Do you have a cutoff or is that more of a thing you kind of get a feeling for?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it kind of comes with some, you know, experience of kind of seeing primary versus secondary cases. I would say a lot of the primary cases, you know, have the more severe thrombocytopenias where their, you know, counts are oftentimes less than 30,000 and and frequently less than 10,000. And then, you know, anecdotally looking at some of the patients that we've seen, you know, here, a lot of the secondary cases, you know, kind of may fall into that moderately to severely reduced platelet count, but kind of be in the 50 to 90,000 Uh, range on your CBC. Um, And yeah, so I think if I have a case of suspected ITP that's not kind of less than that 30 to 40 cutoff, then I always am a little bit more concerned that it could be a secondary process that, you know, we need to go looking for. Okay.
0: Um, You talked a little bit in the article article about antiplatelet antibody testing. So could you um, just speak to that a little bit more? When would you suggest using that diagnostic?
1: Yeah, so it's not something we do very commonly. Uh, Most of the um, assays now are going to be flow cytometry, and so a lot of places may be kind of limited on their uh, access to a flow cytometer. Um, The test itself is kind of looking for um, antibodies, you know, attached to or directed against the the platelets themselves as a way to try to confirm that there is an autoimmune component to the um, patient's disease process or thrombocytopenia. I think the problem with the antiplatelet antibodies is it's a relatively non-specific test. And so that we know that, you know, a lot of cases of secondary ITP are going to have antibody um, production as well. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's primary in nature. Um, And then in some of the studies, normal or dogs with ITP had normal uh, counts and, and didn't have kind of. Uh, abnormal readings consistent with uh, antibody directed attack against platelets, and so I think that, you know, it's it's imperfect. I think kind of the situation where it may be worth considering is if you have you know kind of these nebulous cases where you, you know, think it could be ITP, but you're not really sure, and and kind of um, confirming the presence of an antibody directed attack, um, you know, may help you feel better about an immune mediated process going on. So, I think that. You know, in, in veterinary medicine I think we're relatively good at, you know, diagnosing uh, ITP. And so I think that it's not a common test that probably is gonna be needed, but I think it is available at, at some institutions and for those that the minority of cases that may be benefited by having that test run.
0: So maybe it's just something good to keep in your back pocket.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and hopefully over time, you know, it may become helpful or we maybe find ranges that, you know, better discriminate things. But I think right now it's just not as specific to to kind of be recommended probably for every ITP case that comes in.
0: Life in the clinic is busy enough without wasting time looking for things. The revolutionary new Plums Pro combines our trusted, time-tested drug information with everything you need to get through your busiest days. Subscribe for anytime access to concise, practical monographs covering diagnosis and treatment topics, algorithms to guide your case management, and a library of more than 750 shareable pet owner guides. Plums Pro is fast, easy to use, and always right at your fingertips. We can't guarantee you'll always be able to find a working otoscope head, but we'll take care of almost everything else. Find the clinical support you need the first time, every time, at plums.com. So let's change gears a little bit and start to talk about treatment, um, because that was kind of the focus of, of this quiz. Uh, you know, I'm sure most clinicians are, are aware that, you know, immunosuppressive therapy is really going to be the cornerstone of treatment for immune-mediated thrombocytopenia. Uh, but there's lots of options out there. Uh, why why are glucocorticoids really considered the first-line therapy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're right. They're kind of the old faithful, you know, drug for uh, autoimmune disease in general. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with just kind of the rapidity with which they work. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're a very kind of non-specific immune suppressing uh, medication and, and kind of impact both the innate and adaptive immune responses in the body. Um, and so just their action to kind of quickly suppress lymphocyte proliferation and cytokine production and ultimately antibody production. Um, is is very helpful for these guys and so um, you know some of the other medications that we have access to you know oftentimes take a little bit more time to, to work. Um, and so kind of trying to gain control of the disease, especially in animals that have clinical bleeding already is going to be a very important process, which is why steroids are, are kind of our go-to initial um, option for this disease process.
0: Sure, because they work really fast. Yeah. Definitely I've had cases where I've been concerned though because I know that, you know, steroids can predispose to GI ulceration and hemorrhage. Um so when we have that situation, you know, what can we be doing to help, you know, get the the thrombocytopenia under control quickly but also managing hemorrhage. Yes,
1: yeah, so I think you know the the thing with ITP is that uh, you know most of those animals assuming they don't have any risk factors or on medications that could cause GI ulcerations are oftentimes oozing across kind of intact mucosal surfaces. And so, um, you know, the concern for me is probably more so, you know, in those anemic patients that may have taken kind of a hypoxic injury to their gut, kind of as the shock organ, you know, that they may be more predisposed to developing GI ulcerations on steroids alone. But, you know, for most of our ITP cases that, you know, have a mild anemia, but, um, or otherwise, you know, just showing, you know, mild petechiation or mild, you know, melanin. I think that the, uh, while we know high dose steroids can induce some mucosal erosions, kind of the risk of having severe complications from, you know, therapeutic doses of steroids are uncommon in this disease process. Um, And there are some, um, you know, things that we can do to, to try to prevent or protect against the development of that. But I think the You know, a big thing that I, you know, work with students to try to understand is that, you know, if they come in with melanin, it's oftentimes oozing across, you know, normal mucosa um, and that it's not necessarily reflective of the animal having an active ulcer that we need to be concerned about.
0: So what other immunosuppressive agents should you combine with, with, you know, corticosteroids with glucocorticoids if your patient is refractory to those medicines?
1: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, we have lots of options and and I think kind of some of it may depend on, you know, the severity of the animal's disease. You know, I think the animal that you were mentioning that came in for its um, procedure that, you know, didn't have any clinical signs and we incidentally diagnosed it. I think that in those situations, you know, using steroids alone may be all you need to do to, to control that animal's disease. I think I get a little bit more concerned if an animal presents, you know, with, melana or any other forms of active bleeding, just because once bleeding starts, that usually is kind of a, a snowball effect, you know, that that is likely to get worse or contribute to complications down the road if we don't uh, resolve the bleeding or thrombocytopenia quickly. Um, and so if there's any form of active bleeding outside of petechia or ecumosis, I usually do start a secondary agent um, at the time of diagnosis along with the steroids. Um, some other times it may depend on, you know, what we can do financially. Sometimes it may depend on if the animal can take oral medications or not. And so that may impact some of the decisions, but um, probably the most common, you know, go-to medications uh, for adjunctive therapy would be things like cyclosporine, um, mycophenolate, which can be helpful because it comes in an injectable form as well as oral medication. Um, And then azathioprine is again, kind of an older you know, medication that's been around for a long time that is also a little bit less expensive than some of the other ones. And so that may be a good treatment option uh, as well that may save some cost long-term. Um, and there's a lot of um, uh, immune, immunomodulatory therapies that can be tried as well. And so things like vincristine and um, IVIG that may also be uh, beneficial. But I think for the most part, Cyclosporin, mycophenolate, and azathioprine are probably the ones that most people use most commonly to kind of modulate um, the steroids and, and work with them. I think for me too. I think the size of the the animal also impacts my decision. Just because if it's a large breed dog, I, I feel a little bit queasy about having them on high de, high dose steroids long term, just because mm-hmm. it could impact things like their, um, you know, creating cruciate ligaments and other ligamentous injury things like that. And so. Um, I I mainly use secondary agents in those cases just as a way to pred spare them and and hopefully not have as much pred side effects over time. Um, And so I think that that is also a a good justification for adding a secondary agent from the get-go for for big dogs.
0: So that's really helpful when we're adding, you know, a secondary agent. What if we're still having problems? Do do you just keep adding agents? Do you add a third agent or do you switch what you're what you're combining, say, from prednisone and azathioprine to prednisone and mycophenolate? Yeah, I think,
1: you know, a little bit just depends. I, I get a little bit nervous about adding, you know, too many medications just because, you know, the more you add the, the risk for more immunosuppression and especially longer term after you gain control of the disease, you know, they can develop um, opportunistic infections that can be problematic for these guys as well. Um, I think that, you know, if I, have started steroids and have started a, a secondary agent and we're not seeing a good response, I think the options would be to um, either try a different uh, antibio- or antibiotic immunosuppressant. Um, you know, and so if you were using oral cyclosporin and the dog had a lot of GI bleeding and you were maybe concerned that the animal wasn't absorbing it and that's why it wasn't responding, then potentially transitioning on to IV mycophenolate may be a, a good alternative for that animal. I think the other option would be, you know, if you have started medications and aren't seeing responses that, you know, that may be a reason to, to reach for things like Vincristine or some of the, you know, other kind of non-traditional mm-hmm. uh, 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 medications that we've used in these guys as a way to try to, to boost your uh, response and, and try to increase the platelet count.
0: So you mentioned Vincristine, and that is one of the things that I wanted to talk specifically about. Mm-hmm. um, you know, I've heard of just, you know, giving the injection of incristine, is that continued or is it just a one-time injection, get the platelets up faster, and then we don't go back to that drug?
1: Yeah. So the, the dose we use, um, is, is, I would say most of the time we only give it once. You can give it, uh, once weekly until the, uh, animal responds to the, the, therapy for the ITP. I would say most cases, even after one dose, uh, it doesn't work immediately. And so sometimes it'll take a day or two before you start seeing an increase in the platelet count associated with vincristine administration. Um, but uh, but it's definitely a, a relatively quick acting therapy. And, and for a while there, we didn't know if um, the platelets that were released, because vincristine as a microtubule inhibitor causes fragmentation of kind of baby platelets off of the megakaryocytes kind of before they're you know, fully mature, and so we didn't know if they were actually functional platelets or if they were just making us feel better by increasing the platelet count, Um, but one of our former uh, residents at UGA did the study looking at um, those platelets that kind of were uh, fragmented early and actually Mm -hmm. found that they were functional uh, platelets, and so now we feel better that they are increasing the number, but also helping and contributing to hemostasis in those patients as well, Um, so yeah, so I think of increased, it's one of those medications where you know the the earlier you give it the better just because if you know the animal starts to spiral or kind of decompensate you know that may not be the best candidate for vincristine at that time and so you know i usually tell uh, clinicians that if you're going to do it do it you know at the time of diagnosis so that way it has the couple of days to start working and contributing to increasing the platelet count like your steroids and secondary agents are as well but i think there are some things you got to be careful about there's one study that came out looking at vincristine uh, use with things like cyclosporin, and, and kind of those patients were predisposed to developing neutropenia uh, in association with the vincristine. The so he's got to be careful and, and make sure that some of the drug interactions don't work against you in those situations too.
0: Well, that actually leads really nicely into my next question, which is how often are we bringing these patients back in to monitor and, and what are you considering the baseline for, for monitoring therapy?
1: Yeah, so I would say you know typically once we find the drug protocol that that works for them, um, I usually try to kind of let them coast on their medications for at least a month, and so like four weeks, and then based on kind of having a normal platelet count, we usually start reducing the steroid first, just because it's going to have the most side effects, and so trying to get that out of the picture is nice, um, and so typically kind of after that, um, you know, three to four week mark of having their platelets increase, um, then we'll um, start tapering their steroid by twenty five percent every two to four weeks, um, and then usually once they're off the steroid, if they're on a secondary agent, um, then you, you know, after about a month of being off the steroid, you could potentially consider uh, tapering and getting rid of the secondary agent as well. You know, and so most durations of therapy should be you know somewhere around that four to six month mark that they're on. You know lower doses of drugs before they come off completely just to ensure that we allowed a complete reset of the immune response and, and the animals showing signs of continued improvement and kind of anytime you would get the patient in to consider a taper then obviously we'd want a, a cbc or at least a platelet count to kind of look at a normal platelet count to make sure that a taper is is safe in that patient before continuing um, and then if at any point you uh, see a trend down of the platelets and we usually would just start by going back up to the last dose that controlled the disease and just leaving the there for a little bit longer before attempting to taper again.
0: So let's talk about some other medications, you know, in these patients. Obviously, NSAIDs are a big no no. Um, They inhibit platelet function, (laughs) and we usually have these animals on high doses of steroids. However, I have lots of patients that come in already on NSAIDs because they have osteoarthritis or they have, you know, um, they've been maintained on NSAIDs for another disease process. So, what's the quickest and easiest way to transition these patients off of their NSAID onto a steroid?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, sometimes that's a hard situation just because, you know, like we talked about, you know, that steroids are going to be the the fastest and most effective option for those guys. Um, and some of it may depend on how critical the patient is, you know, your um, incidentally diagnosed ITP case, you know, that may be a case where, you know, could you stop the NSAID and start them on a secondary agent as a monotherapy first and, and see if cyclosporin alone or mycophenolate alone was enough to control their disease and, you know, give them a five-day washout from the NSAID and if their platelets were still low then start steroids at that point you know i think probably the the worst situation is the you know the animal that presents on emergency that you know is anemic and have active bleeding and you know we probably don't have three to five days of a washout time before that patient would succumb to the disease process and so sometimes we do have to take the risk of, of starting the steroid even without an appropriate washout from the NSAID um And so I think in those situations, you know, that's kind of where things like preventative uh, medications, like starting uh, proton pump inhibitors like pantoprazole or, you know, even mesoprostol, things like that, that um, may potentially, you know, help support the gut. But um, I think if I feel comfortable enough to do any level of washout, I think that that is fine. But I think in in those actively bleeding patients, I think those are the ones that we might have to risk it and um, give them the the steroid without a, a washout period.
0: And then potentially use some of those other, you know, gastroprotectants and, and supportive therapy, like you were just talking about. Um, yeah. You do list some of those uh, gastroprotectants in the quiz, and and you know, next to them you say use with caution. And so that is for the reasons that you were just talking about. Or are there other things that we need to be concerned about with those meds?
1: Yeah, something I think. Um, uh, yeah, I think I put two of them on the, the paper one was the famotidine or kind mm-hmm. of H2 antagonist yes. and, um, uh, Katie Tolbert's an internist, uh, that's done a lot of work looking at antacids and, and kind of led the ACVIM consensus statement on it. And, um, she's kind of shown and, and sold several studies that, um, the famotidine doesn't really increase the gastric pH of veterinary patients, um, as effectively as it can in people. And it really doesn't, uh, Raise the pH to a level where it's protective or uh, helpful for resolving uh, ulcerations as well. So, I think if we are going to use uh, kind of an acid, I think the proton pump inhibitors have been shown to be more effective, kind of as an oral or intermittent injectable uh, form of, of an acid therapy. Um, and you know, I think my issue, you know, I, I'm I try to be a minimalist, and so I like to try to give patients, you know, the least amount of drugs as as they need to, um, you know, not overwhelm their liver or kind of their body and trying to being able to process everything we're pumping into them with process diseases like this. Um, and so I think that, you know, just because I have an ITP patient with melana, I don't necessarily always start them on a, a proton pump inhibitor because, like we talked about before, you know, it's a lot of a, the bleeding is across uh, intact membranes and. Um, while we know steroids, you know, may cause some level of ulcerations, usually patients do fine without having to be put on a proton pump inhibitor. But I think if you're, you know, concerned about a patient's tolerance of the high dose of steroids, or their level of uh, GI bleeding, or if they have a history of potentially having negative reactions to to NSAIDs or steroids, then I think, you know, it's definitely reasonable to consider putting the animal on a proton pump inhibitor at, at diagnosis. Um, I think the, you know, ideal situation would be to try to, you know, only use it as needed and kind of with some melanostops, you know, could you then stop the uh, proton pump inhibitor because um, it can contribute to dysbiosis and, and other issues in the intestinal tract um, that could become problematic for the patient. Um, and it can impact some uh, efficacy of some of the other medications. And so we know drugs like mycophenolate need an acidic environment to be uh, kind of be converted and work. And, and so you may make it less effective if you're giving mycophenolate orally in addition to the uh, proton pump inhibitor. So so I don't think it's wrong to use them. I just think, you know, ju- judicious use and, and trying to, you know, use it for a shorter period of time as possible that you feel like is beneficial for the patient is probably ideal.
0: So just make sure you're putting a lot of thought into which patients you're using it in.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, One thing that I noticed that you didn't include in your quiz was melatonin. And I've actually heard of melatonin, you know, being used for cases of immune-mediated thrombocytopenia. Do you have any opinions on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is one of those kind of carryovers from human medicine um, that, you know, has been uh, shown to kind of have a positive effect on kind of, a, it's a, almost a similar mechanism as uh, vincristine that it kind of increases the fragmentation of um, platelets off of the, the megakaryocytes. Um, and so there's been several reports in people, and I think unfortunately, you know, people just assume that it did the same thing in, in veterinary medicine, but we don't really have studies in dogs and cats that show the uh, therapeutic effect. Um, we have a couple of case reports that it was, you know, used in animals with ITP, but they were also on kind of other standard therapies like steroids. And so it's hard to say that there was a, you know, beneficial effect of the melatonin or not. Um, and then there's one paper looking at kind of what melatonin does in healthy animals, and it didn't necessarily um, change any aspect of the um, platelets or their function kind of in that healthy animal population. So um, so I think it's one of those things where, you know, is it going to hurt the patient? Probably not. Is there a benefit? I think it's hard to say without having more studies, specifically in uh, dogs that you know, it's also going to be hard to prove just because, you know, obviously we don't want to withhold steroids or, you know, other
0: mm-hmm.
1: efficacious uh, medications to test if melatonin is going to work or not. But, um, but yeah, I think that uh, it is out there, but just realize that it may not be as the most evidence-based mm-hmm. drug option that we have in veterinary medicine at the moment.
0: And maybe going back to that, you know, why overload them with medications, especially one that we don't have, you know, any good data or proof for its use. So, yeah. so the last thing I'd like to talk about is prognosis. What What is the overall prognosis for um, ITP and does it change if it's, you know, primary or secondary?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I think, you know, looking at some of the studies and, and kind of just anecdotally at our case numbers at Georgia, um, you know, the prognosis tends to be relatively good. I think that, you know, some reports are anywhere from 75 to you know, kind of 87% um, survival to discharge. Um, And and so I think that we do a good job about recognizing it and and managing it. And I think that owners are very, you know, committed and and are able to do a lot of the things that we're recommending for them. Um, I think the kind of difference between primary and secondary ITP, a lot of the times depends on, you know, what the secondary cause is. You know, if it's secondary to something like hemangiosarcoma, then obviously, you know, regardless of what we do, it's not going to be a great outcome you know, whereas if it's something like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, then that becomes a lot, you know, better as a, a prognostic. Um, and so, I think um, we do fairly well and have good numbers with it. I think the bigger issue for us in veterinary medicine is the the relapse rate, just because that can be an issue over time. And so, some of the studies have you know reported up to fifty percent relapse rate in patients that dis- survived a discharge. And so, mm-hmm. that you know kind of hammers home the importance of you know regular monitoring, even on animals that you're able to taper off of, you know, therapy, you probably still want to get them in, you know, at least a couple of times a year to make sure that you are catching any issues early. Um, prognostic wise, um, kind of the the major things that have been reported are um, kind of associated with active bleeding at the time of presentation. And so things like an increased, you know, BUN or discordant BUN to creatinine ratio, as well as the presence of melanin have been shown to be associated with kind of worse outcomes. I would say in general, I might apply that to kind of any active bleeding, obviously, if you're, you know, bleeding into your lungs or your brain um, or your GI tract, that, you know, probably makes you a little bit worse than the animal that has no signs of bleeding. Um, and then occasionally we can see animals that have kind of an autoimmune directed attack against some of the precursor cells in the the marrow or kind of the megakaryocytes. And um, we kind of call that uh, uh uh, a bone marrow level attack, uh, ITP. And so those cases may not have a ton of megakaryocytes in their marrow after they've been destroyed to replace you know, the circulating uh, platelets. And so those guys have been shown to be a little bit harder to control, may take a little bit longer, um, and they might have a, a poorer outcome. Um, but the only way that we'll know about that is if we have a bone marrow aspirate. We don't routinely do that in all of our ITP cases, but I think that if you have these cases where they're, not responding, not responding. That may be an indication to consider doing a bone marrow aspirate to see if they're one of those cases that just has no megakaryocytes to replace um, the ones that were destroyed.
0: And then is it, you know, you talked about that fairly high recurrence rate. So are there lots of these patients that end up remaining on therapy lifelong or are we really, are we able to get most of these patients off therapy at some point?
1: Yeah, I would say the majority of patients that we've managed are, are able to come off of um, therapy. Um, you know, and even if they relapse, it doesn't necessarily mean that they won't still eventually be able to come off. It probably is just going to delay or extend the amount of time they're going to be on immunosuppressive therapies long term. Um, but I would say most of our patients are able to come off kind of after that four to six month treatment window and, and kind of careful monitoring. I think occasionally, um, you know, especially if we've had patients have like really severe relapses or um, have had multiple relapses over the course of their life that sometimes we'll just intentionally plan to leave them on low doses of uh, medications over time. And we don't really know if homeopathic doses of, a- of immunosuppressants does anything to stave off, um, you know, the relapse rate of a ITP case. But I think a lot of the times it makes us feel better as clinicians that at least there's something in the animal's uh, body. Um, I think you also have to kind of factor in other Uh, conditions the animal may have. Like I had a a basset hound that had ITP that would relapse kind of every spring kind of because he had seasonal allergies and he would just blow up with seasonal allergies. And then all of a sudden he would kind of relapse with his ITP signs. And so kind of seeing that trend in him, we were then able to kind of readdress his allergic disease and and kind of, you know, prepare and plan for that kind of every spring to be able to mitigate that. So I think if you can identify any associations, you know, with the Relapsed, and I think that would be you know a, a good situation. But oftentimes they relapse for an unknown reason, and, and kind of may need to go back onto medications temporarily. Um, but yeah, I think the relapses can happen. I think you know the relapse rates are, are variable, and so I think that's something I usually let owners know about that you know even at the time of discharge we may not be out of the woods you know yet, and is something that we're gonna have to monitor and, and be aware of for the rest of the animal's life most likely.
0: Well, that was some wonderful, insightful conversation. Hopefully, everybody that listened today can go back and score a hundred percent on your quiz. <laughs> um, but before I let you go, I actually have a little quiz for you. Yeah. Um, so at the end of our episode, we like to play a little game. It's it's just it's very easy. Just a few would you rather questions. So do you okay. want to play? All right. Sure. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Would you rather put together an e-collar without the help of your technicians or treat a lion with diabetes?
1: Oh, lion with diabetes. I love diabetes. I so. know you do. <laughs> that, was, that was an easy one.
0: <laughs> you um, run the Diabetes Center, right? Like Yeah, I have
1: yeah. a diabetic clinic at UGA, <laughs> yep. so that's the love of my life. So I'll take diabetes all day, every day. <laughs>
0: If you had to pick one to practice without, would you rather practice up without meropitant or without prednisone?
1: Oh, I don't think I could survive without prednisone. So any any good internist has a good supply of prednisone in their <laughs> pharmacy. So I think I would have to stick by my pred.
0: Trusty prednisone. <laughs> would you rather place an IVC in a one-pound dehydrated kitten or in a 30-pound obese pug?
1: Oh, Good question. I do like my cat, so I'll probably pick the the little cat. You
0: take the little kitten. Okay.
1: Pugs aren't my favorite, so the cat wins that one.
0: (laughs) Would you rather learn a new skill every year, or would you rather hone one skill and be known as the best in the world at that one thing?
1: Oh, I probably would like to be a jack of all trades. So I think that's why I like being an internist is we get to do a little bit of everything. So I think maybe expanding my skill set and, and being good at a lot of different things would be more enticing to me.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree. I like to learn something <laughs> new every every chance I get. All right, final <laughs> question, and this one is the most important. If you were the inspiration for a veterinary superhero, would you be in the Marvel universe or the DC universe?
1: Oh, well, Marvel for sure. Absolutely. And you <laughs> answered correctly. <laughs>
0: Well, that was it. I'm I hope you had fun playing our little game. Awesome. Yeah, that was great. (laughs) And thank you again for joining us. This was wonderful. No
1: problem. I love being here.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed our episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, including a video version now available on YouTube. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate and review us. You can also listen to or watch our podcast episodes on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts, or drop us a line at podcastsbriefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ussery and hosted by Dr. Alyssa Watson.